Welcome to the Album Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Andy, Todd, and Tude. Oh yeah, here we are. It's the Album Nerds Podcast. We're back once again. I'm Dude, I got Andy and Don with me. Well, gentlemen, it's just so good to see you today. So, uh, how you guys doing? Great to see you too, buddy. Yeah, it's our 200th episode for all those who are been with us this many years we've been doing the show 200 (laughs) yeah congratulations fellas yeah podcasts are funny like you do a bunch of episodes but then you go back to the beginning and it's cringy like you know you learn you learn as you go like with anything so it's just it's a little weird to have that many out there when what our show is now is what i feel like our show is yeah it's still a little cringy though so yeah that's true that's true (laughs) I could listen to a show from a month ago and be embarrassed at what I said. <laughs> We've got a great show for you today. We're going to talk about three albums, going to answer a question. We're going to circle back and then talk about what we learned. And then we're going to spin the wheel of musical destiny to find out what kind of albums we'll talk about next time. But this week, we're celebrating 200 albums. That's what I'm talking about. In 2016, two friends decided the best way to connect with other passionate fans of music, and specifically the album format, was to produce a podcast. They called that podcast Album Nerds. Since then, Andy and Dude have released 199 episodes. Along the way, in 2022, beginning with episode 143, they asked a listener and fellow album nerd Don to join the show. This is the 200th episode of Album Nerds. To celebrate the occasion, we are taking a look at Rolling Stone's top 500 albums of all time. This list was originally published in 2003, was updated in 2013, and again in 2020. To make that list, Rolling Stone tabulated top 50 album lists from more than 300 artists, producers, critics, and music industry figures. Today, on our 200th episode, we are each picking an album from Rolling Stone's top 200 but it has to be from an artist who has not been reviewed on an episode of the Album Nerds podcast. Clever, huh? That tale you just spun. (laughs) Yeah, man. I mean, this was harder than I thought because we've done 200 freaking episodes, um, many of which we've talked about a multitude of albums, and a lot of them are on this list. Yeah, might say we have pretty good taste. Or you might say that we're trend chasers and uh, (laughs) not original at all. But yeah, I mean, some of the stuff that uh, I would have liked to have looked at was like Beach Boys Pet Sounds, but I couldn't. You know, uh, Prince, Purple Rain, which for me might be the number one. Can't. We talked about Prince. But some of the stuff that I considered was Public Enemy, It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back. I just felt like that discussion for that album needs the right context, maybe on a hip hop episode or something. I feel like it it, bear, it needs more than just like top 200. There's more to it than that. Uh, mm-hmm. The Clash, London Calling, we haven't talked about them, but uh, I'm satisfied with what I came up with. How'd you guys do? Lots to pick from, a lot of interesting stuff. There were a handful of records I hadn't heard before, which is kind of what I ended up focusing on. But I'll mention a few that I had that I was considering. I listened to the B-52's self-titled album probably like four or five times now for different shows and just haven't picked it yet. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah, get some surf rock on here eventually. Jay-Z has like three albums in the top 200. 
almost picked i think the black album is my favorite of his but he has a lot of good stuff lauren hill we gotta get her on the show eventually if i'm listening to miseducation of lauren hill probably like five or six times too thought that was gonna be the one man <laughs> yeah i really love that record we'll get to it and uh nine inch nails the diamond spiral pretty highly ranked on that list as well almost picked that that's a great stuff i mean it's hard, it's hard to pick between like your some of your favorite records and some of the all-time greats so yeah, it was kind of a, it was a frustrating experience for me, you know, that I'd be like, oh yeah, I, I love that album and, uh, ooh, uh, Neil Young Harvest. So I, I search it on the website and it's like, oh, you guys talked about a Neil Young record for 20 <laughs> seconds. But yeah, so right. with, um, so I seriously considered doing the, the Dusty Springfield record, uh, Dusty in Memphis. I mean, she's somebody that, that people cite all the time as, as being a, you know, a tremendous talent. So I almost did that record and, and I'll probably revisit it, uh, in the future. I also spent time with that B-52s record and the public enemy, but yeah, I, I'm actually quite satisfied with, with my pick. All right. Well, let's get to it then. You choo choo choose me? Welcome to the stage with a great big round of applause, the star of the show, the one and only vote recording star, Otis Redding. Dude, that is, that's how we should do the intros for our freaking show, man. Get the okay. crowd hyped a little bit. Yes, the crowd. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so for my Rolling Stone Top 200 album selection, we are talking about Otis Redding and his 1965 album, Otis Blue. Let's play a little bit from the second single. This is a little bit of I've Been Loving You Too Long. Alright, so this is the third studio album for the singer-songwriter from Dawson, Georgia. I was hoping it was Dawson's Creek. That would have been really cool. <laughs> I don't think they're related. <laughs> so the record is known for solidifying uh, Mr. Redding as a commercial success. It had a lot of crossover appeal as it featured a bunch of covers from contemporary artists, including uh, Sam Cooke. The track we just played is one of the three original uh, Reading Pen songs on the record. See a couple interesting tidbits. It was largely recorded over a 24 hour period in 1965. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It was like from like Saturday night to like through Sunday afternoon or something like that. Crazy. That's how we should do this. Just record the whole year's worth of shows in 24 <laughs> hours. <laughs> oh man. God. That sounds fun. Yeah. So it garnered three singles, which became top 40 hits. Um, we are going to get to those shortly. Yeah, the three words I use to describe this record are, can I live inside the record? I just love the, the feeling of this record. It's just such a warm, inviting sound. Not only his voice, but just the production and, and the band. And, and everybody just sounds so inviting. I was immediately taken by it. I hadn't heard this before, uh, before this, this week of listening. And I was just immediately struck by how just good it felt to listen to. Oh, his voice. His voice is yeah. like, I don't know how to describe it, but... So he's being sung by the song as much as he's singing the song. Hmm. You know, you can hmm. you can it. tell that the inspiration is coming as he's going. And I think that's part of what's cool about this era in recorded music, where sometimes you just go with the flow instead of it being so meticulous. Yeah, right. It feels a little more spontaneous, a little more alive. Yeah, yeah. 
All right, why don't we play another cut from the record? This is a little bit of You Don't Miss Your Water. Oh, how I cry, you don't miss your water till you will run dry. So you Don't Miss Your Water uh, was written and recorded by William Bell uh, in 1961. Like everything he does, uh, Otis made it his own. Uh, I just, I, I really like that lyric a lot. You know, of course, it's, it's such a cliche to to sing about crying, but to sing about it in that way, like you don't miss your water till your well runs dry. I just think that's, uh, I think that's really cool. It mostly just made me thirsty. Excuse me. <laughs> <sighs> ah, yeah. Okay, buddy. Glad you got your well water over there. <laughs> Uh, the three words I chose to describe the album are Ducky did testify. Right. And so this is a, that's just a stupid <laughs> reference to, uh, to the, the, uh, 1986 film Pretty in Pink by John Hughes. In that film, uh, the character Ducky is like lip syncing and dancing in the record store to, uh, Otis Redding singing Try a Little Tenderness, which is not on this album, but, you know, he's like really into it. And, you know, that might even be like my first exposure to Otis Redding. Me too. So yeah, so thanks Ducky for the for the reference. <laughs> yeah, I mean you guys already talked about the the vocal talent and I guess, you know, as you said it's it's hard to describe and and maybe that's that's how you know somebody really is special, you know, because you you can't describe it. He doesn't sound like anybody else. I mean, it can be somewhat crass or harsh at times, but like in a mm-hmm. good way and like under control, but he also can do the, you know, soft, beautiful sounds. Yeah, I was struck by that too. Like on the edges, it feels like his voice is very rough and, and ragged at times. And he almost sounds like he's straining, but uh, other times he'll hit a note and just sounds so effortless and just so pure and beautiful and just perfectly soft and round. And it's a cool, it's a cool combination. Man. He's just, the voice really is uh, an instrument. You know, I mean, you can do do so much with it. Plus, mm-hmm. plus, I think you know the this is almost certainly one or two takes at the most. Yeah, you know, for these songs, which, uh, like I said earlier, I think is what makes this interesting, especially when it's a bunch of covers. Uh, besides the three originals, the reinterpretation I think comes easier if you just let it fly. Yeah. You know, you're not trying to do it a special arrangement and la la la. You just do the song sometimes without even knowing all the words yeah (laughs) (laughs) does he does he mess up some some lyrics here or what do you mean oh yeah yeah we can get into that in a minute though okay so yeah so as you said there's only three originals on this album Uh, i do wish there were more because you know he obviously is a a, a very talented songwriter but you know i'm reminded of people like ray charles and aretha franklin and johnny cash who you know just turn songs into their into their own mm-hmm. uh, and so he yep. does just a, a great job of that well i just think it's funny you mentioned aretha franklin who took a song from this album respect that's his mm-hmm. and she mm-hmm. made it her own and the context of it completely changes the, <laughs> yeah and, and her delivery of show me some respect when i get home yeah. so just that that's really cool it was wild hearing like the male side of it. Like, yeah. all I want is when I come home, I just want you to treat me well. And yeah, and Aretha like totally flipped on its head, which is <laughs> it's cool. Yeah, I got a make me dinner vibe from his version, and right. uh, make your own damn dinner vibe from her <laughs> version. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. You can kind of see why her version became the you know the definitive right. one. Okay, why don't we play a little bit from one of those cover tracks? This is a little bit of I can't get no satisfaction. Get to know, oh, no, no, we got to move it, 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 move
Yeah, I mean, so this album was 1965, right, Andy? Yeah, I had to double check that too. When did that song come out? 1965, June right. 5th, 1965, the Rolling Stones released their recorded version that they wrote, Keith Richards and Mick Jagger. And uh, what I was talking about earlier with the words, I mean, there's some missing lyrics. There's a bunch of made up, I got the get the, and all that kind of stuff that <laughs> apparently, according to sources wikipedia <laughs> otis redding claimed that he didn't know the original lyrics of the song and he made them up as he went steve cropper who worked on the session had to write the lyrics down from listening to the rolling stones version because he didn't that stuff just wasn't easily available on your interweb so he i think some of the words were a little wrong he knew the vibe of the song and just kind of <laughs> went with it and i love it i mean i love this version uh ronnie wood of the rolling stones said that later live performances by the Rolling Stones have been influenced by his interpretation, by Redding's interpretation. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I get the feeling of it for sure, I think. The band sounds good. It's, out, it's a little more desperate. The Rolling Stones version is a little more like sneering and sort of lewd. Yeah. Mm. And Otis's is a little more like... I got it. I got to, got to have you. You know, there's a little, there's right. more urgency in it, a little more passion. True. It really does demonstrate the the similarities, you know, between those those two genres. You know, rock and roll and R and B are, you know, really come from the the same place and have the same history. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, great performances on here from from Booker T and the MGs. I never realized they were kind of his uh, his backing band. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, every time I listened to it, I looked forward to that interpretation of a super well-known song that no one dare reinterpret now, but he did it like a week <laughs> later, and it's awesome. Devo yeah. did a good job, too. I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> so, quickly, I'll just, the three words I used to describe this album were the man can sing. I mean, I already touched on that point throughout our discussion. Holy crap. I've, I, don't, I don't know that I've listened to Otis Redding whole albums before, and he's awesome. And that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> the other thing I'll just mention about this record specifically, and part of why I picked it, is it's right in that sweet spot in the mid-60s where record companies started thinking about selling albums as entire entities and not just singles. And this, along with a couple of the records from 65, are kind of considered like that first crop of like really great albums that came into being and were like marketed as such. So it's a nice place, nice place to start this episode. And also uh, I'm glad that Rolling Stone... Uh, saw fit to uh, honor it by putting it on its list. So I gotta say, in the original list, it started at number 73 or 78, I want to say, and now it's it's fallen all the way back to 178, which feels a little bit crazy to me. But regardless, still in the top 200. Well, a couple, you know, decades go by, you've got to add new artists in there too. You know, music continues. Albums keep getting made, so. Mm -hmm. The future, the future is, now. is now. Thanks for holding that pose. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So once again, the record is called Otis Blue by Otis Redding. Uh, it's available on all the usual streaming platforms. Check it out if you haven't heard it. It's an excellent lesson. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people like me. If you're enjoying the show, and we hope you are, do us a solid and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Maybe we made you laugh. Maybe we made you cry. Maybe we made you throw your phone across the room. Or you discovered an album you enjoy. Leaving a review keeps the show going and helps other music fans find us. 200. 200. Tyrannosaurus Rex. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> the album uh, I, I chose is from a band called T-Rex. That's 
That's short for Tyrannosaurus yes, Rex. Yes, and we'll get into that in a, in a second. But the, the album's called uh, Electric Warrior, released in September 1971. It was number 188 on the 2020 Rolling Stone Top 500 list. Let's hear uh, the song that's that it's most known for. Uh, this is Bang a Gong, Get It On. I've never understood why this guy wants people to have sex with gongs. It's just totally <laughs> weird to me. Okay, don't hit till you try it, buddy. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> just got to say, so you know, last week I, you know, I was listening to this on headphones while I was doing some some weed whacking and some grass clipping blowing, and. <laughs> And some and, gong uh, banging. You know, I just could not stop myself from like strutting to to this song. Yeah, kind of like the the Mick Jagger strut. I think it calls for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I actually saw that on YouTube. It said "Crazy Neighbor Dancing in Yard." Someone caught you. Yeah. So anyway, so that song was originally uh, originally just known as "Get It On," but there's a, another band called Chase who had a song called "Get It On." So now it's officially "Bang a Gong" (parentheses Get It On). Mark Bolin, who's the uh, basically the the main guy from T Rex, claimed to have written the song out of his desire to record Chuck Berry's "Little Queenie," uh, and said that the riff was basically taken from that Berry tune. Um, song actually f- features piano from Rick Wakeman, who you might know from the band Yes. Uh, also, also saxophone from uh, Ian McDonald of of King Crimson. So yeah, T-Rex is uh, an English band formed in 1967 by singer, songwriter, and guitarist Mark Bolin. Uh, the band was originally called Tyrannosaurus Rex and had a, a, a kind of like a psychedelic folk sound. Kind of reminded me of like Donovan. So, you know, over time, uh, Bolin embraced more like a- electric sounds. Uh, and in 1970, officially changed the band's name to T-Rex. Electric Warrior is the second album since the name change, and there's there's six overall. So, you know, Bolin is basically uh, T-Rex with a rotating cast of characters. The main players on the album are Mickey Finn, you know, who did like congos and bongos and does a lot of the backing vocals you hear, Steve Curry on bass, and Bill Legend on drums. Uh, the, the three words I chose to describe the album, uh, I just said Godfather of Glam. Uh, it's always hard to pinpoint, you know, where things began or who did it first first you know this album at least you know predates um you know bowie's the rise and fall of ziggy stardust and the spiders from mars it predates the the roxy music self-titled debut you know this is really the the beginning of glam and and probably the you know the first true uh glam record okay well let's uh let's hear another uh another track uh this is a song called planet queen So Planet Queen, cool song. Kind of reminds me actually of Donovan's Hurdy Gurdy Man, which the psychedelic stuff here is definitely on display in that particular track. Um, The lyrics are poetic and surreal, fantasy. Maybe he's abducted by aliens. He's going to, I don't know, make love to the Planet Queen's daughter. I I didn't, it was just weird. He just, it's nonsense for the most part, yeah. I think. Lyrically, I think he's just goofing around a lot. Yeah, like the, he's, he's, he's susing. He does get pretty clever. You know, like you're built like a car. You've got a hubcap diamond star halo. I, I just, I love that line, you know? Yeah, yeah. there's, there's <laughs> no, great lines. It's interesting. It's interesting, yes. but it feels kind of throwaway. 
Yeah, I think it's just going with, you know, it's sort of lyrically a concept of space and then let's go. And then very <laughs> rhymey. It's very rhymey, which yeah. I do like. The three words I use to describe this album might be what a weirdo, but instead I'm going with <laughs> wham, bam, glam, which is in the same category as what Don said. You know, I think about Bowie and wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, and, and what came after, which I think ultimately was more interesting because there were more than those other artists were more than one flavor. T-Rex is kind of what T-Rex is, but I hear T-Rex in a lot of music today. including King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. Like, absolutely, this is an influence. There's no doubt. Um, Especially some of the space stuff they talk about and the way that they do it. I didn't realize it until I experienced this album over and over again. And I started having little flashes of uh, King Gizzard. So, yeah, fun listen. Uh, Glam rock really dominated the UK charts from like 1972 to 1975. And it didn't really happen in the United States. There there were American glam rock artists, um, you know, like Lou Reed and the, the New York Dolls, um, the Stooges and stuff like that. But it didn't really have the, the commercial success that it did in, in Britain. Okay, let's hear uh, the opening cut. This is Mambo Sun. Yeah, I, I really like that track in particular. I really, I came to like the whole record. I, I like the sound quite a bit. It's sort of strange sounding. I guess I would say it's a little weird. <laughs> it's spacey. Yeah, spacey. But it feels exciting. It does feel like they're kind of creating something new as they go, which I love. Uh, my three words are a bit wheezy, kind of cheesy, but goes down plenty easy. So wheezy, cheesy, easy are your three words if we boil it down. Yeah, if you want to get specific, sure. <laughs> go, you know, like you're saying like he loves the rhymes and his lyrics here. So to, uh, try to incorporate a little inspiration from him here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you nailed it, man. Yeah, I mean, I liked his, his kind of, I would call his lyrics kind of goofy, uh, a little campy perhaps, which I think kind of falls in line with where glam rock was, is headed. Um, but he delivers them in such like a cool kind of breathy tone that I found like really, uh, interesting. And, and yeah, and totally agree with the dude. Like, wow, I hear so many bands doing like this style nowadays. Um, King Gizzard for sure. That band or that artist called King Tough we've talked about in the show, like, they sound almost exactly like him at times. Sonically, I think the record maybe gets a little samesy as it goes on. I didn't feel like there was a lot of new stuff happening as it as it played on. The tracks are all short and tight, though. And they don't really give a lot of room for exploration, which I watched some of their live performances from the 70s, and they, they jammed out hard. And it was mostly drum and guitar soloing. So I found that really cool. You don't, you don't get that on the record, but... Uh, it's nice to know they have that that capability. But yeah, I guess you got to talk about his guitars a little bit. Like he's a, seems like a pretty excellent guitar player. You don't get a lot of soloing on this record, yeah. but it seems like he was pretty adept player. Not so much about showing off, but yeah, I, I, you know, this was way more bluesy than I expected it to be. I appreciated that. A couple more thoughts, just uh, sonically. Uh, you know, I, I do think there's some some tasteful use of of strings. You know, on a lot of the tracks, particularly like uh, Cosmic Dancer. Um, also, you know, the the backing vocals. 
you know, there's a lot of that, ah, you know, just weird yeah. sort of goofy stuff that, that Bowie ended up uh, using a, a lot. And then just, you know, one final thought, you know, Cosmic Dancer is a song that I was familiar with uh, in the past. You know, Morrissey actually does a cover of it. But I always liked the line, is it wrong to understand the fear that dwells inside a man? And it's just in the middle of this weird song where he's talking about dancing since he was 12. But there's that weird line in it. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's the line that makes it worth listening to. Because when it's like, dancing from the womb, I'm in my tomb. Like, okay. <laughs> 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 yeah, get that one nugget of truth in there and makes it all worthwhile. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's only 188 on the the Rolling Stone list, but I think it it belongs in the the Album Nerds Hall of Fame. So I am going to nominate. Yeah. So you know, I, I think this is a, a definitive glam rock album. I, I think it's an important uh, genre uh, in in the history of music. You know, kind of influenced punk and metal that that came later. You know, all that hair metal. You know, we we talked about. You know, there's there's glam in that. Um, it's produced by Tony Visconti, who is like a key figure in this glam rock movement. Hey. <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, what do you guys think? I'm gonna say yes. I mean, I agree with everything you said. It's a 200 episode uh i don't want to make anyone sad but and by saying no but yeah it's a landmark album it did pave the way for a lot of the stuff that's awesome today and it's a great listen andy well uh, as much of a fan of dinosaurs as i am i i like this record i don't think it's a definitive glam rock record though and i mean i'm not the most knowledgeable person on glam rock but i feel like it's a cool idea, but I don't think the execution is maybe as exciting as I thought it would be. You know how many times you've shot us down? 200. <laughs> Are you going to triceratop my T-Rex? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Stick my horns into your belly. Okay. Stop. Stop. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if it's a definitive record for me. Obviously, it's very influential. That really bangs my gong, Andy. <laughs> I don't doubt the influence it's had, but I don't know if it's would be the one that I would pick to represent the genre necessarily. No one asked you. <laughs> Actually. Uh, so I'm going to say no, but we'll leave it up to the listening audience and see, uh, see what they think. Go to our website or our Discord, albumrates.com, to uh, cast your vote. Sorry, Don. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, uh, apologies to uh, to T Rex, the uh, electric warrior. Not an Ainhoff inductee yet, but listeners, please save it. Two hundred. Excuse me. I'd like to ask you a few questions. Well, it's that fun time on the show where we uh, ask each other a, a question. Uh, so, you know, we've, well, at least you guys have produced 200 of these uh, podcast episodes so far, and we, we hope people are, are taking, you know, things away from them. Uh, what have you learned or discovered or been turned on to from another podcast? Yeah, there's so much stuff I've learned from podcasts, man. It feels like it's the, like the new public education to some degree. I guess <laughs> all this good information is freely available. It's your yeah, Wikipedia. Essentially. Your Wikipedia. Your Wikipedia. I'm sure that'll catch on. Oh, man. Someone's going to steal that. Trademark. <laughs> is that all you have to do? You just say trademark? <laughs> I think. Yep. So, no. <laughs> <laughs> TM, TM, just say TM, right. you're good. Yeah, so I've listened to a lot of great podcasts over the year, but I'm actually wearing the t-shirt for a podcast that I enjoy called The Truth, and I thought I'd give that a shout out. It is immersive storytelling in the way that like, if you remember like old-timey radio programs used to be where they would have like the footprints on, you know, walking to the door and then like this creak of the door. 
they do all the cool effects and like really great voice acting and amazing original stories that will just blow your mind and have you like sitting in the car after you park somewhere just to hear how the story wraps up. And it's freely available. I think it's better than most crap on Netflix. So I would highly recommend The Truth Podcast. Uh, it's available in all the usual places. And uh, yeah, I mean, if storytelling is your thing, I think it's one of the better ones I've, I've heard. So yeah, that'd be my recommendation. Uh, in that case, I want to give you a recommendation, Andy. It's it's called The Weird Place. It's a Dana Carvey production, and it's basically like six episodes, five episodes of like Twilight Zone type stories with Dana Carvey doing all the voices, and they have the footprint sound effects cool. and all that stuff telling, you know, kind of funny versions of Twilight Zone type stories. The Weird Place. I'll check it out. The Weird Place. All right. So, uh, for me, it's all about fantasy football. I mean, I've played fantasy football since 1999, but when I started listening to fantasy football podcasts, one in particular, the fantasy footballers, it took my interest to another level, hearing these guys, three guys so passionate about it and having so much fun with it. It also inspired me to want to do a podcast because they were having so much fun talking about this thing they love. So, part of the reason we're here is because I was listening to those three dudes on the fantasy footballers and winning championships with the information. Now everybody knows about them, but at the time in 2015, they were brand new. They were recording out of their someone's bedroom in in one of their houses and now they, you know, they have a studio and they go on tour and so, yeah, I learned not only about football but podcasting from those Sweet. guys. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I've, I listen to so many uh so many podcasts and I I you know, a lot of them are, are educational, but I, I'll just focus on one. There's one called uh, Grammar Girl, Quick and, D- and Dirty Tips. Hmm. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. Uh- <laughs> Yeah, the, the podcast, it's, it's pretty short, but, you know, every week, uh, she's talking about, you know, sort of gr- grammatical mistakes people make, or, you know, there'll be explanations for why things are a certain way, <laughs> you know, explanations of like the, the Oxford comma and stuff like that. And I don't know why it interests me. Maybe because I like to be that guy that, you know, Correct. criticizes people for their, for their yeah. grammar. Yeah. And, and they love you <laughs> yes, for it, I'm sure. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so it's, uh, it's grammar girl, quick and dirty tips. What have you guys learned from, uh, from other podcasts? Hit up the socials, go on, uh, on our discord and, and let us know. Albumnerds.com slash discord. 200. Yeah, I prefer the purity of the human voice. Really? Let me, let, let me, let me just, let me just demonstrate. All right. We have so much drama in the LBC. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going with Paul Simon today in the album Graceland. We won't be going with his version of Gin and Juice, but I thought it was pretty interesting that he that he did it. It was a joke. You got to like the guy who, who will do something like that. It's funny. So Graceland, the album released August 1986 by Paul Simon, number 46 on the Rolling Stone Top 200 that we worked from. It's a seventh studio album. Solo studio album, and uh, it's a blend of sounds. It's Paul Simon mixing things up with uh, some influences from South African music, and uh, it's quite the sensation. Why don't we get going with the title track, Graceland? My traveling companion is nine years old. He's the child of my first marriage. 
And I was like a young teenager, I think, when this came out. And I, my dad had the record. You know, everyone had the record. It was a, sold like 7 million copies. It was a comeback for Paul Simon after a failed album before it. And that line, my traveling companion is nine years old. He's the child of my first marriage. I just like, that's when I started to understand Paul Simon's style, that using short describers to set a scene and then kind of going on to the next thing, but just that crisp, clear delivery of his. The three words I use to describe this album are Ryman Simon's Rhythms. Ryman Simon's okay. Rhythms. So he had an album called Ryman, Ryman Simon. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a, it's a blend of his style, you know, his vocal style, that crisp, clean delivery, the lyrical style, the little storytelling elements, and then the poetic that comes from it, and then this rhythm-driven South African music that inspired him. Uh, apparently, he was inspired by a bootleg cassette of a South African street music called oh, God. Oh, and <laughs> we've talked about it before, but Mbank. Gang, it's M-B-A-Q-A-N-G-A. He traveled to Johannesburg in 84 to collaborate with local musicians, and then additional recordings took place in the United States. There were some controversies because there were embargoes on things in South Africa. We weren't supposed to, to mix with them because of apartheid, so there was a lot of controversy about whether he should or shouldn't have done that, if any rules were broken. But um, while we get to another song and uh, see where the conversation takes us. This is Diamonds on the Soles of Her Shoes. People say I'm crazy, I got diamonds on the soles of my shoes, yeah. Well, that's one way to lose these walking blues. Diamonds on the soles yeah, of my shoes. It was hard shoes. for me to pick one track off this record, but I think that one nicely encapsulates the sound that he achieves on Graceland, which I think is awesome. And it's a real achievement to Paul Simon and what he was open to to exploring in, in his career. I think he still explores even to this day in his in his career. My three words are, it's better together. This is like one of those rare cases where the idea for the record itself, I think sounded terrible on paper, but it worked out. It worked out beautifully. <laughs> and he really did create something unique and, and new and exciting. And I don't know if it's really been replicated since then. It's this amalgamation of all these different sounds. You know, part of it is South African influence, but there's also things from the US too, like uh, Zydeco is pretty prevalent on the record. And there's still pop and folk influences here as well. And it all just comes together. And I think what makes this so cool as it doesn't try to sound like it's saying something specific about South Africa or apartheid. It's just like its own thing existing naturally in the world and it works really well. It's celebrating the sounds. I mean, that rhythm in that in that music is unique and then finding a way to blend that with good old Paul Simon with some of the same kind of affectations he would have done in an acoustic album. It's, it is unbelievable that it yes, worked. Yes, it's a small miracle. <laughs> and people freaking yeah. loved it. Well, and, and, you know, the artists included, like uh, the South African male choral group, Lady Smith, Black Mambazo, came to be known mm -hmm. because of this. Um, and, and they had, they ended up having a lot of success in the U.S. after this album. Uh, they toured with him. Other artists that, uh, played on this got writing credits on the songs. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't Paul Simon just taking a sound and stealing it and making it 
all about him. I would have liked to have seen the the Paul Simon and blah 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 on the album cover, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'd read a little bit about the background of it, and I got the impression almost. I mean, he paid the artists very well for their time on the recordings, and they got, like you said, a lot of notoriety from the record. All right, so big time album. Why don't we listen to the big time single? You can call me out. Don making a little bass face. <laughs> yep. Uh, so that bass there, that was uh, a guy named, uh, I'm going to butcher his name, uh, Bagiti Kumalo, who's a, sa- a South African bass player. That bass solo there is uh, palindromic or palindromic. Basically, they were, the first half of it they they recorded, and then they just played it back backwards. Huh, interesting. So, uh, yeah, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, I, I mean, everybody knows that song, so I just wanted to focus on that little instrumental part there. W- one thing I, I really like on, on that song is that the, the muted string uh, guitar there, the which I think actually is a, a six-string uh, electric bass, which is an instrument I'm kind of obsessed with because, uh, you know, that's what Robert Smith plays on, on Disintegration. Um, so, yeah, I think that's Paul Simon playing that part. Um, so, the, the lyrics to um, You Can Call Me Al uh, basically, t- to me, seems like a, a, a midlife crisis kind of thing. And the the origin of the, the title uh, is supposedly a, a French composer and conductor named uh, Pierre Boulet was attending this party with uh, Paul Simon and his wife Peggy Harper. This Boulet guy basically re- called him Al, and he called his wife uh, Betty. Uh, and so, yeah, so that's that's where it came <laughs> from. Uh, another interesting fact about that song: that saxophone hook there, the dan I mean, that's several layered saxophones, but also in there is a um, synthesized guitar um, that kind of sounds like a, a, a saxophone that was done by the guitarist Adrian mm-hmm. uh, Bello. Huh. Uh, so the the three words uh, I chose to describe the album: uh, never stand still. Uh, so Paul Simon, even going back to, to Simon and Garfunkel, I mean, he's just an artist that's that's constantly reinventing himself. You know, he's he he never gets comfortable doing just just one thing. He's always challenging uh, himself, and I mean, he just does an amazing job here, borrowing from you know Zulu sounds and stuff like that and Zydeco. But you know, I think people can get the the wrong impression if they don't listen to this album that it's just Paul Simon doing Zulu music or Paul Simon doing Zydeco and it's not it's a Paul Simon record that's just you know using these influences so it's like he's it's if you follow his career you know he's always done that you can he's like a sponge just absorbing all these things and he integrates it um, into his unique songwriting Uh, his songwriting is a bit different you know, I, I think on this album, it's more of like a groove-based songwriting, uh, whereas I think in the early days it was more about like a, a, a melodic hook. Although there are plenty of those on this this album. You know, there are some really pretty parts and some some nice melody. I feel like lyrically on this record, I have a hard time following what he's talking about. Like, it feels like a lot of like in-jokes, like kind of like you were describing there about the dinner party. Whereas past records, I feel like I can understand what he's getting at more. I don't mind it in this context because the music's so interesting. But do you find like you can follow these songs? I think at this point in his career in life, I think he was on his second divorce. This was with Carrie Fisher. And like even, even Graceland was started about that about about his divorce and his place in his life that he's at. The Graceland part came from the sound of the song. It reminded him of old Sun Recordings, the groove of it. And so 
the Graceland word was stuck in his head, and then he decided to take a trip to Graceland to fill in the song. And so I, that's kind of what, listening to it throughout my life, I've always kind of felt like he yeah. looked left and wrote yeah. about it. He looked right, <laughs> he wrote about it. He woke up from a dream, yeah. remembered something, uh-huh. wrote about yeah. it. You know, that's what it felt like. Doesn't this, the album sonically, doesn't it feel sort of spacious? Like, I, I yes. feel like it's uh, like a big open yeah. field or something. Feels like a road trip, like you're on a drive. To me, it feels more like a, like an island beach setting, yeah. just like where things are open and vast and... You can see far. Maybe because I, as uh, as a youth, I never saw an island or a beach <laughs> in the um, Midwest, in part of the Midwest <laughs> yeah. I was living in. So, yeah, it was about flat plains and li- long drives. <laughs> so, well, same idea, yeah. that far horizon yeah. idea. All right, so you know this is a highly acclaimed album, considered one of the best of all time, and he did some amazing stuff here and uh, captured me as a teenager when this kind of this was old people music, but there was still something special about it, and I've loved it uh, throughout my life. So I'm going to nominate this for the Album Nerds Hall of Fame. And a yes for me. Yeah, I think I will go yes on this one as well. Oh, wow. face Don. <laughs> I've always really liked this record, and it's, it holds up. It still sounds really cool. And I still stand by like there's really no other record that I've ever heard. It sounds this blend of, of genres. It's cool. Yeah, and just because Andy likes it, I'm kind of like I'm feeling like I don't want to say yes. But <laughs> don't punish me, man. <laughs> this is why I don't nominate records anymore. I don't want to... Anxiety. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. We're um, out for blood, yes, Andy. This is this is definitely uh, you know this is a, a, a great album. Woohoo! All right, welcome, Paul Simon. Yet another notch on the bedpost. Another another accolade. That was Paul Simon's Graceland, newly inducted Album Nerds Hall of Fame member. Okay, so we we took a, a, a journey through the the top two hundred of of Rolling Stone's list of uh, greatest albums of all time. What did we learn? You know, there's a reason we don't do a lot of lists on this podcast. Uh, I think lists are just rife for for problems and critiques. And obviously, they've edited things a lot over the years. I know people were pretty upset when this list first came out, and people are always going to be upset. But I think they did a, a pretty good job. Like there weren't a lot of like glaring admissions. I mean, the the one probably the biggest thing you could say is like, these are all artists from like the Western part of the world generally. And you really ignore (laughs) more than half of the globe. And largely mainstream Mm -hmm. hit making uh, for the most part. There's not a lot of a deep dive, you know, unknowns on here. Totally. I did appreciate the amount of hip hop that is represented, especially in the top 100. There's quite a quite a bit though it's mostly like 90s hip-hop uh you know one thing i i struggled with is is some of the more recent artists that are in there some of them are, are quite high on the list you know people like taylor swift and beyonce uh and like nothing against those the, those artists or, or modern music but i i feel like we're not removed enough from this era to really know where those records stand you know it's easy to you know point to a beatles record and recognize its its influence but you know i'm not sure what yeah. uh, Taylor Swift's legacy is or, or Beyonce's. I think that that leans into what I learned, which was these. this isn't static. So today, this is the truth. And that's why they redo it, you know, and, and, and it's based on people's opinions. Stuff changes. And I that's what I learned is that these lists move with the with the time. And uh, I'd like moving with them. And that's one to grow on. <laughs> 
All right, boys and girls, gather around. It's time once again to get out that wheel of musical destiny and see what Wadbot has in store for us next week. Let's give it a spin. Whispering rain on the window, albums spin in the haze. The music you play cuts through the gray. Your musical destiny is to contemplate rainy day albums. Rainy day albums. Uh, it's very subjective. I like that. Could be fun. Doesn't have to necessarily be about rain, but something you'd want to put on while it was raining. What's your favorite rainy day album? What else are you listening to? Let us know. Join fellow album nerds on Discord at albumnerds.com slash Discord. You can email us at podcast at albumnerds.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at albumnerds. And please subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast app. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so via PayPal at albumnerds.com slash support. Thank you once again for joining us on the Album Nerds Podcast. Maybe this is your 200th time. Maybe it's your first. Either way, come back next week. We'll be talking about rainy day albums. What up? Thanks for listening, everybody. Catch you on 201. Happy 200. A man walks down my street, says, Why am I recording a podcast? Why am I recording a podcast? When everything I have to say is dumb, dumb. Is <laughs> 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 that the B-sides of Graceland there, man? Yeah. I just wrote that in the middle of the show. <laughs> That's great, man. Wow. <laughs> Two hundred.